what's up. This is the You Are Not Listening to This Podcast. My name is Will James. And I don't know how this one's going to go. This one's kind of for the Adventist insiders, but I'll try to lay some, some groundwork so it makes sense. But I have a confession to make. I have a social media account that no one knows about. And on that particular account, I predominantly make sometimes humorous, sometimes serious uh, content about aspects of my former Adventist worldview that were difficult for me to process, live with, or extricate myself from if the need was necessary. It's not a secret account. I've just never let this particular platform cross with the others. I want it to stay pure, like I originally wanted for this platform, but that's becoming more and more of a struggle because I've shared it with friends and family and I find myself being a little more careful with my words. So on the other thing, uh, I got into a discussion recently. And it was the first time that I'd posted something that had bothered someone else enough that they felt the need to show me a better perspective. Uh, it did not work, but the exchange was enlightening, but in all the wrong ways. Uh, so here's, here's what happened. Well, first off, Seventh-day Adventists have a belief in the ever-possible spiritual endowment of the gift of prophecy. Technically, lots of denominations have that. But what I mean here is that not only were people in a more ancient time visited by angels or given messages, visions, or instructions directly from God, like Moses or Elijah, Daniel, Isaiah. Similarly, in Adventism, at any given moment in time, God can and will commence such visitations again. More specifically, really, it's believed that in 1844, the Holy Spirit poured out that gift of prophecy on a specific person named Ellen White, who then maintained and exercised that gift for the remainder of her life. She's one of the founders of the church. She left behind 100,000 pages of instructions and interpretations for the Seventh-day Adventist Church, who considers those writings to be direct counsels from God. She's the one topic that so far I have not felt comfortable really discussing here, hence why I recently started discussing her there. What I did, okay, so basically what I, they're like little mini skits where I juxtapose the concept of her inspired writings which have been deemed a continuing and authoritative source of capital T truth, at least by the Adventist church. I juxtapose them with some problematic statements that she published in her name and are readily available from the church, Adventist bookstores, used bookstores, and her estate's website. I made like five of these. And no, mom, I'm not going to tell you where they are or let you see them, but... At the risk of crossing these streams, I'm going to play you one that got a response to, not a debate, but to discuss.
statements I was effectively taught to believe came straight from the mouth of God. Part three. The colored people. That's <laughs> not a good start. The colored people should not urge that they be placed on an equality with white people. What? So far as possible, everything that would stir up the race prejudice of the white people should be avoided? Hey, hey, hey. There's a typo in this motherfucker. So that's the joke. That was it. It's not even funny. It's no big deal. I just read a quote from a book Ellen White wrote called Testimonies for the Church, Volume 9. That's from page 214, where she says that colored people should not urge that they be placed on an equality with white people. So far as possible, everything that would stir up the race prejudice of the white people should be avoided. So I made a typo joke. It was therapeutic for me, okay? I figured the likelihood of any Adventist coming across this post was relatively slim. I just wanted to show the dissonance. Like I, I would hope I don't even need to say what's wrong with that quote, right? I mean, that was kind of the point. I didn't really comment on it. I just read it. And from that post, I've had several interactions, actually, with uh, former Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Christian science members about the particular struggles of growing up in religions that were born from movements that occurred during slavery and then having to reconcile the words of your prophet. Like, there are not many religious sects that have this issue. But I knew I wasn't alone. I was making these. There's been some interesting conversation. I did worry a little bit that maybe a white Adventist might come across this and take offense at the implication that the great prophetess of Adventism had some white supremacy vibes in her. And to be honest, I didn't worry about it too much because I don't even really think that's a dig or a criticism. It's it's common sense. I mean, we are talking about a white American woman who was 38 years old when Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. That's a full adult with bills, grade schoolers at the house, and all that before it became illegal to own black people. So, of course, she was going to have some problematic racial biases. My point was not to criticize her personally, but to challenge the idea that the church maintains that while her words are from her pen, the ideas behind them, the impetus to articulate them at all, came directly from God through vision and dream. For that to hold true, then it was really God who would be the one who wanted black people to know to stay in their lane, to do not persist. Attempting to obtain equal rights will only anger white people. It's divinely important that you not anger white people with your cries for justice. What I didn't expect was for a 25-year-old black man to come try and check me for it. This is what he said. It was not a big deal. It wasn't, this never turned into an argument or anything. But he said this. Wasn't she trying to get black people to further the work in our own community the safest way possible? That's how I understood it. 
they already took issue enough with having a female prophet. Add her saying, hey, go ahead and make black people equal with whites and let them integrate into the same churches. Doing that in Jim Crow South would be dangerous for both black and white people and would hinder the work. She also said, and this is the part, this is the part I skipped when I read the quote because there's a little bit in between there. So he, I know he went and checked my work because <laughs> he, he filled in the space. She also said that the race problem between black people and white people was perplexing. I don't know how that bails her out on saying anything that would upset white people should be avoided just because she said this is a complex idea. But anyway, he threw that in there. And then he closed with this question. You don't think she yearned in prayer for the best answer for that situation. Now, he said a lot, and he said way more than I said in the joke I was making that he was replying to. But it was that he closed the argument with a question asking me to directly challenge the earnestness of the founder of the church we both grew up in, being taught that she was the most directly and divinely inspired human to have ever lived, short of Jesus. Because normally I don't take bait. I don't engage even in healthy discussion over things that I submit to the internet. This might be kind of off-putting to tell you this, but in all honesty, I'm not interested in debate or argument. When I do something like that, or when I record a podcast like this, I do it for cathartic reasons. Once the words come out of my mouth, how they land on the audience's end, other than my mom, I couldn't possibly care less. However, this time, I was very intrigued. Because this, this is the argument you always get. If someone, from Adventist at least, if someone gives you an Ellen White quote, the proper response is, Ellen White said a whole lot of things about stuff. You got to look at them all and come up with a conclusion, you know? She did write a lot of things. And I didn't read every word of it growing up. Uh, I read a lot of Ellen White. Ellen White was terrifying for me as a young person. I came back to her later. I didn't know about her quotes surrounding race until I was already in a process of deconstruction. I'm telling you that because I did not grow up as a little black kid knowing that the woman I believed literally spoke for God, who my church's top office had called the only infallible interpreter of biblical principles because her writings are really Christ giving the meaning of his own words. I didn't grow up thinking that she thought that it wasn't worth God's remnant people and true church's time to attempt to improve the plight of the African-American. Instead, of course, God wanted us to solely focus on telling the world that everybody that has ever picked up a Bible has gotten the doctrine of atonement wrong before her, and what, what, what most Christians believe happened at the cross didn't really start happening until 1844. So, black people, keep taking it on the chin. Tell them about my dream. If I had known about that, then my deconstructing belief in Ellen White's providence would have started earlier. I'm just being honest with you. Now, this guy seemed to already know about this because, I mean, he came right back at me. <laughs> so either he went and read from the citation I gave him and came back with a conclusion, 
or he'd always known about these quotes. Either way, he didn't like the line I focused in on. I focused in on the one that gave the reasons, and he didn't like that one. See, his point was that, I guess, because she said a lot of things about race relations and spreading the word, I must be judging her from a 2021 perspective instead of a 1909 perspective when she actually wrote that chapter. I suppose that's partially my fault, because I did take that dig at her using the phrase colored people, which would have been perfectly acceptable at the time. That was just for entertainment value. So I thought about it for a minute, and then I decided, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and answer this kid's question. I'm going to take the bait. Do I think she yearned in prayer for the best answer for that situation? And you know you're dealing with an entrenched believer when that kind of language starts flying out. Yearned in prayer. So I said, no, I don't. (laughs) Or she wouldn't have landed on telling black people not to even seek equality just to protect white fragility. That might have been too far for him. I, I don't know what else I could have said. But he replied and he said, I would agree with you if she was doing it for white fragility's sake. But from everything I read, meaning the things that he had just brought up from the rest of the chapter that I quoted, that wasn't the case at all. So he was was effectively saying, I was wrong in that this was about protecting white fragility, which is fine. We can have differences of opinion. But keep in mind what the quote was, and keep in mind I didn't comment on the quote. I just read it. The colored people should not urge that they be placed on an equality with white people. So far as possible, everything that would stir up the race prejudice of the white people should be avoided. That's the reason the colored people should not urge for equality. She gave it to you right there. I didn't make up the white fragility thing. She said it. And he confirmed it with all the reasons he gave. White people were the they that were already struggling with learning from a woman. White people were the they that instituted Jim Crow laws. White people were the they that would make things dangerous for both races if there was joint effort towards equality. Don't seek equality because the people that don't want you to have it will get angry, and that will prevent all of us from telling the world about the atonement thing. Her entire point was, white people aren't ready yet. It couldn't be clearer. Protect their fragility. That's, (laughs) I didn't add anything to it. This guy just didn't like that. And it seemed to think that I was the person he's arguing with when it was really Ellen. See, I wasn't pulling her into today's mind frame when I did this. Like I said, she's 38 when slavery ended. The statement comes from her 44 years later. So let's lay down some context. Let's paint a picture. Why don't you imagine you are a black person, male or female, your choice. Imagine you were 18 when slavery ended, meaning you were born into, sold and traded, ripped from your family, and spent your entire childhood enslaved, treated as property, less than human, three-fifths at best, for census purposes only, 
but the fullness of the image of God has definitely been denied you your entire life. Now at 18, now an adult, you find yourself emancipated, not really even knowing what that word means as you've never known freedom other than that thing white people seem to have. And even now, you don't have that. What you have are the clothes on your back. Then an Adventist comes to you and he speaks of the God who has just freed you as he through Moses had freed the Israelites from Egyptian bondage. In exchange for your gratitude, that God only wants devotion, love, and obedience. Also, that God has sent a prophet to the world in this time whom speaks for him through visions and dreams and and she's directly entrusted with instructions for God's people at this time. So you like this message. You join and spread this message. And you spend 44 years in post-slavery America. Jim Crow, lynchings. You see your slave masters become the first police forces. You see the brutal treatment of being freed from your oppressors but not brought to a new land. Stranded where one law changed, but none of the minds really have. The looks haven't. The view of you in the order of creation hasn't. And at 62 years old, having longed and prayed your whole adult life to the God you believe freed you, that at times now seems to have abandoned and forgotten you again, you find out the prophetess has word about you and your community from the Lord. And you read, do not urge that you, your children, or your grandchildren be treated equally to the white people in this country. Stay in your place, or you might make your Egyptians angry. And everything that would harden the hearts of your pharaohs should be avoided, because God cares more about the feelings of your oppressors than bringing justice to the oppressed. Now, I once read in a book ascribed to the prophet Micah to seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. The book of Isaiah told me to learn to do right, seek justice, and defend the oppressed. But Ellen says, forget your oppression. There's no time. Does that sound right to you? See, I understand that racial issues are still a complete mess, but consider the America of 1909 and think of all the strides in equality of all kinds that have been made or at least shown improvement in since. Yeah, this country, as backwards as a lot of it is, has taken much better to the idea that maybe all men really are created equal than they have to the message of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. But according to Ellen, there was no time for a civil rights movement. There was no time for the fall of the Jim Crow laws. There was no time for desegregation. There was no time for anti-discrimination laws. All that was a hindrance to her work 112 years ago. Yet the second coming that she was speaking of still has not arrived, and much of the Adventist church can't even explain to you how her work even works. 
Clearly, there, in fact, was time to pursue equal rights for black people and other people of color, the LGBTQ plus community, the differently abled hell. There was even time to find equality for corporations. I'm not judging her by any other time frame or context. I'm just telling you what she said and you didn't like it. Here's why I'm telling you guys this story. Why it was interesting to me. I told you I made five of these. One deals with a quote where Ellen White asserts that there are inequalities and inequities between males and females that make women easier for the devil to manipulate. There's one that talks about how drinking tea and coffee is a sin that injures your soul. Not health, but your soul. And we know what happens to willful sinners, right? One is about how in a letter to her own six-year-old son, she declared that God does not love children that are naughty. Not that he's disappointed in them or expects repentance from them. Not even that he loves them but hates when they sin but that he does not love them. The other is about how people who don't immediately suppress a desire to match the current fashions of their time are quickly dropped by God from being his children and become children of the world destined for the same place coffee drinkers going. These are a random five selections of problematic things that are incredibly problematic if you think they are straight from the divine source. But the only one that spurned a response of defense came from a young black man who would not accept that a white lady who spent four decades of her life living around slavery had some problematic racial ideas. He couldn't accept that because of what he has been taught to believe about the words that are attributed to her. I made him feel like his prophet might have had some white supremacist ideas in her head, of which there are plenty of other quotes I could have chosen, such as, in heaven there will be no color line because all will be as white as Christ himself. And he decided he had to defend her from my perceived slander from just reading her quote. So women, children, sneakerheads, and people with Starbucks apps, be damned. But don't say the prophetess was protecting white fragility. Don't suggest she may have thought less of black people than white people. In my opinion, he couldn't handle the implication that the founder he adores wasn't perfect in a way that directly related and affects him. He wanted to make sure I knew I was wrong so that he would feel better about what she said. Not what I said. I didn't say anything. So he, a 25-year-old black man, decided to argue separate and unequal was divinely inspired policy because Ellen White said it was. But his entire life has been spent in a world much more equal than the world she wrote that in. And her work still ain't done. She's not wrong because I'm judging her 112 years after the fact. She's wrong because she said there was no time for equality because Jesus was about to return and then 112 years and counting have passed. 
Jesus ain't here. And I live in what used to be a sundown town without worrying about anybody burning crosses in my front lawn. That's my point. And that's always the breaking point with Adventists. It's always something that Ellen said. We'll ignore arguments that we don't feel touch our experience. But if any seem even slightly challenging, they have to be rebuffed. Not disproved, just rebuffed. He wasn't trying to convince me. He didn't need to. Nor did I need to convince him of anything. But someone from the black community had to stand up for Ellen because someone else from the black community had questioned the prophetess. I simply read the words that she said God told her to say. And it's, it, that's the thing that's interesting to me in these, these issues. Because not everything I do has something to do with Adventism in specific, but it's never a God thing or Jesus thing that gets people upset. It's an Ellen thing or a Sabbath thing. Say what you want about everything else, but those are the two bright lines. You want to debate the ordination of women? Fine. Go ahead. You want to debate whether Job and Jonah are historical or possibly allegories? Fine. Go ahead. You want to play around with how old the universe might be? Fine. Go ahead. But the earth was created in six consecutive 24-hour days, followed by the first of a chain of never-ending and never-broken Saturday Sabbaths, and Ellen White's writings are divinely inspired. The testimony of Jesus, the spirit of prophecy, the words Jesus says about himself. Full stop. I challenged one of those two areas from several angles. But the only one that bothered him was the one that would mean that his church, which was founded in the 1860s when slavery was still legal, might have been founded by people with racial biases. See, if I had quoted her husband, having said that, or anyone else, would have been fine. It was that it was her. And what should be an obvious point became a point of tension because of the pedestal she is on. I'm not the one pulling her out of her context and time. Her title is. Now that guy will never find this. As again, I'm not crossing these streams with other platforms and that's for the best. I'm not trying to convince him of anything or you. I made a funny, and I don't care if he laughed or not. I do hope he finds some peace that he's looking for, because I do think he's looking for something. There's definitely something going on internally for him, or he wouldn't have needed to defend what he defended. What I wasn't going to do was get deep into the woods of Adventist theological discussions via direct messages with a 25-year-old. At 25, in Adventism, that's not enough life experience to know how to challenge your own beliefs enough to have that conversation. At least at 25, I wasn't there yet. But I thought I was. And that is a problem. It was my problem any time I found myself on the defensive end of a challenging quote from the prophetess. I was defending her more than thinking about what I was saying. And that's why none of the points that he tried to make worked. Every additional quote he referenced also showed a protection of white fragility. 
which meant he was accepting that white people actually would have gotten mad, and thus Ellen gave good advice from a peacekeeping standpoint. Of course fighting equality was going to cause static. Of course it was going to be disruptive. Thank God her work didn't get around fast enough to stop our civil rights leaders or who knows where we would be. You see, to validate her statement, he was respecting white fragility too. And that felt weird to him as a black man. So he tried to distance himself from it by arguing with me. But I didn't make an argument. I just read a quote. It's inarguable that waiting for white people to be more accepting of black people to then try to convince white people to be more accepting of black people is both ridiculous and rooted in white supremacy already. It's saying improving your people's lives is not worth making that group holding you down angry because they matter more. It's God saying I can't fully free you from Egypt because they still need bricks and they think y'all smell kind of funny. There's really nothing I, an all-knowing, all-powerful creator of everything, can do until they're ready. When you choose to appease the oppressor, instead of bringing justice to the oppressed, you have missed the mark. I don't care who you are. And the thing is, getting that wrong is perfectly reasonable expectation of a white woman starting her own church in the 1800s when her goal was the success of her own church. But it is completely antithetical to the gospel. If God's messenger takes the side of the oppressor, you can keep both of them. If that makes you uncomfortable, look inward. I'm good. This has been the You Are Not Listening To This Podcast. I love you, even though I don't know you.